0: Well, we are back after a little hiatus.
1: Just to get things together.
0: A one-way break. There was a lot to research for this week. but
1: <laughs> There was. And I started really early because we picked the topic two weeks ago. And so I've been going down many, many rabbit holes. And I'm really excited to talk about 19th century cults or... Um I don't know, maybe not cultists it has such a negative connotation, don't you think? Like like 19th century
0: utopian communities.
1: Utopian communities is what they would call them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the ones I want to talk about is not it, it's there. <clears throat> I won't give too much away. One of them is not included in a lot of discussions with ut- about utopian communities. And there's this kind of whole parallel set of literature. Um, but I, I think it's, this is a great topic because I think it's something most people don't know much about at all.
1: I think it's a great topic too, though, because people seem to be very titillated by 20th and 21st century cults. And we talk a lot about those. There's a lot of documentaries. There's a lot of especially interest right now, HBO recently did that series called The Vow, which was about a 21st century cult, um, Nexium, And people have been really, really into that. And I think that some of the ideas that come along with that is like, well, this is kind of a newer phenomenon, you know, this comes out of like, the Manson's, um, the Jim Jones era. And while there was a resurgent, uh, resurgence of cult activity, no doubt, in the 60s and 70s, there's a lot deeper roots to this. So that's what we're going to explore today.
0: Right. So, So I think today, I think listeners need to understand, today is not so much about cults. It's about utopian communities that I think, post-1970s, people would look back upon and say, well, that's clearly a cult. Right,
1: with the negative...
0: With the with all him. the negative things that come with it, and I don't think that in the moment anyone would have viewed it as in such a way. Or, well,
1: that's the thing about cults is people who are in them don't think that they are.
0: No, well, I mean even observers at the time.
1: Oh, a lot of observers were actually, um, I think, interested in them. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to an incomplete history. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff.
1: And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast.
0: So, summer is here in San Diego.
1: Oh, congratulations.
0: Yeah, just, I, I mean, May, Gray, and June Gloom, I'm sure, will be here. But it is clear, completely clear, light breeze, and relatively warm. Nice. Uh, it was hot enough that that Harvey could not go out and sun himself comfortably.
1: Comfortably sun.
0: Well, he did. He He was out there, and then I could tell he came in panting. And I'm like, yeah, don't lay out there in the sun.
1: My dogs are comfortably sunny, uh, right now, sunning, but it's 75. So that's a pretty comfortable temperature, I think, in which to sun.
0: That's nice. Yeah. So maybe you're done with the cold weather.
1: We are definitely done with the cold weather. You're actually warmer than us right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, what's been weird is there hasn't been a lot of rain. There's supposed to be a storm this afternoon, but I feel like the rain has been really down this year and, um, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about that because usually it rains like every day, at least one good, you know, downpour in the afternoon or something. And I haven't really been seeing that yet this year. So waiting on that, it feels kind of dry.
0: Well, we've been very dry. I mean, we did have some rain the last this last week, but we are in another historic drought suddenly. So
1: getting gearing up for fire season, you guys.
0: Well the good thing is is when there's not a lot of rain during the winter there's not a lot of stuff that grows so there's a little less to burn
1: That's true it's a good point so there you go um
0: so utopian communities I mean it's it's I already know we're gonna have to have at least two parts on this because I think we do want to talk about like 20th century cults proper um. But I want to I make an argument, present an argument to you. Okay. The United States is founded as a utopian experiment.
1: Oh, yes. True. Yeah. I would say that most certainly. You've got people who are religious sect coming. Well,
0: yeah. Go ahead. I mean, 1638, New Haven, Connecticut. John Davenport, Theophilus Eaton. They arrive in Boston and then they go and they found New Haven, Connecticut and they plan it out. Um, and they talk about how kind of they need to move out of the city to these urban areas, um, to create a new place where everybody kind of agrees that the Bible is, is the most important thing. um, And they do this city. And what's really interesting is they create a city. This is what I find very interesting. So a lot of these kind of very early utopian movements, and this is kind of late 17th or mid 17th into the the early 19th century. It's all about rejecting the city. But then the first thing they do when they go out into the wilderness is create an idealized city. So New Haven, the original heart of New Haven is a nine square grid. And the church sits at the literal center of the city.
1: When well, then, so many U.S. cities are constructed in exactly that manner, from there on out, and so many U.S. cities, there are more churches than there are anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, even more than there are Waffle Houses at times, <laughs> right? I mean, there's every U.S. Do you like city, Waffle House? You know, no, I don't.
0: <gasps> what do you not like about Waffle? It's houses? really dirty. Well, you have to just so first of all, it needs to be 3 a.m. You need to be a little drunk.
1: Okay, I don't. Those are things that are I really know. But if I were t- in college, I probably would have liked Waffle House, but when I grew up when I grew up when I was going to college, it was taco shops. We'd just go to taco shops. Oh well that's because we, we don't have, have Waffle, waffle house. Houses in SoCal.
0: We don't have Waffle Houses here. Um I think the closest Waffle House to San Diego is in Phoenix.
1: That makes sense. You don't
0: even like the hash browns at Waffle House.
1: Um I don't think I've ever been drunk enough to enjoy the hash browns of alcohol.
0: Smothered, covered. So you can get them with, like, there's a whole kind of thing about how you have them.
1: You can get gravy on them? Huh? You can get gravy on them? Uh huh. Oh, I, I might like them then. I mean, you can get gravy.
0: cheese, mushrooms, bacon put in it, onions put in it, gravy.
1: Wow, well, this waffle is a really job. bad. We're out. We're completely out of topic now.
0: <laughs> I know we are for a moment, but it's. I feel it's. It's my. It's my duty to educate you in the South and one of the Souths. You need to just ignore the lack of cleanliness. That's what just, gets me. Uh, just like pretend it doesn't exist.
1: Okay, that's very um, hard, especially in try panorama. it. Panorama,
0: good waffle House is good. <laughs> it's, well,
1: what I will say to get us back on track, though, is that. The Waffle House Index is used oftentimes to see how bad flooding is during a natural disaster or how bad a natural disaster is in general. Like they will base it on how many Waffle Houses shut down in the region to kind of gauge how bad was the disaster. And so to get us back is like there are usually even more churches Yeah. In these areas than there are even these. these Well, that's, I mean, so that's the thing. It's so many
0: communities. I would, I would argue virtually every community formed in the United States on some level is utopian. It it at least has a a kernel of a utopian origin to it. Because there's a
1: religious crisis going on, uh right? There's a crisis of faith and, and trust in institutions, and everybody's just trying to branch off and do their own thing, and it ends up creating all these little like cult communities. Well, they, yeah,
0: contemporary we would look at them as cults because they're usually focused on an individual. And in fact, a lot of the utopian communities we're going to talk about today were focused on one or two key individuals. And and when something happens to that person, then usually the community just falls apart because it was all centered on them. But but I, I, you know, I go back to whenever I teach kind of the the Puritans or the Pilgrims to undergrads, um, one of the things I do is I play them that's The Farewell Address by Ronald Reagan, where he talks about the city on a hill. And, you know, I tell them, look, Americans, since Reagan gave this, have m- many Americans have misunderstood what he meant. And. I think Reagan misused the quote as well because it's from a speech by John Winthrop, and I think what it what Winthrop meant is we are establishing this new kind of utopian community based on God's law. Everybody is going to be waiting for us to fail. They're going to be watching us, and we cannot hide. So if we do things incorrectly, we can't kind of shunt it aside and, and ignore it. It's going to be in feel, full view of everyone. And I think a lot of these communities, these utopian communities operate that way, where they view that they are, that they have to even be, they have to be better than good. They have to they're be a
1: shining beacon, right?
0: Right, that they that they are kind of maybe a, a light to a, path, a future way people can do things, but they're also perilously close to failing at any moment and as particularly when you kind of add puritan or or kind of shifting protestant ideas about god and, uh, and god's providence and all of these things i mean they there's a real fear that that hubris might make them fail as well so you see a lot of virtues and values start to be emphasized as well but but i think it's interesting this idea that the church sits at the heart of almost all of these communities
1: that is interesting because it's not um it is heavily religious and it's christian based you know i think a lot of times when we think of 20th or 21st century cults it's not about um christianity and it's actually more like new wave kind of um spiritualism or something along those lines. Like we, we, we should get into that in another episode, but mm-hmm. in the early Republic era and then into the 19th century, when we're in the midst of the second great awakening, it's a crisis of faith of Christianity where everybody's branching out and trying to find their own brand of Christianity that works for them, that works for their community. Um, and that works to offer some sort of extreme brand of Christianity in many, in many cases where they're doing, like they're taking the teachings or they're taking the Bible or they're taking, you know, some even portion of the Bible and they're just living it out to an extreme sense in these small communities in an attempt to make a perfect society or a heaven on earth or a utopia. And you see these just popping up all over the place. And I would argue too, though, that it has to do with the fact that there's not a strong central government.
0: Right. Well, this is pre-Civil War.
1: Right. I think
0: it's really tied to the second great awakening and we can have an argument. Is there really a second great awakening or is it just one great awakening? Um, that was one of the questions I was asked uh, for my qualifying exam. Oh, really?
1: So I, I, I the think PhD. there's two
0: I think you can argue there's one and there's just kind of this lull in the one. I think that you can also marshal a lot of evidence that there are two. The person who was asking me the question though, is a firm believer that there's only one and that the first one never really happened.
1: Well, I would say, okay. I could say that the second one was a lot more intense.
0: Well, that was, that was her assertion.
1: That would, I okay. I would agree with that. But I think that if you're trying to chart, if there was a first great awakening, Um, And you're looking at this time period in the 18th century, you're looking at, um, you know, the 1700s, the 1700s, (laughs) you're looking at these values um, of predestination, Mm -hmm. you know? And so the idea of predestination, meaning that, well, everybody's chart, you know, everybody's path in life and their path in the afterlife is predetermined before they're even born. And so there's really nothing you can do on this earth to change whether or not you're going to heaven or not. You know, some people aren't, some people aren't. You should still be a good person, live a good life, but like this predestination just sentences you to your eternity without you doing thing- one thing or another. Whereas in the second great awakening, that idea is turned on its head. And it's like no you can't
0: do- Yeah, like Charles Grandison Finney. Right. So more, so we get this idea. I mean, yeah, that's. I mean, I think there's a question of scale, but I, I think that the first great awakening personally still happens, and this is relevant because you have a first wave of utopian communities in the United States that I think are part of that first great awakening, and one of them is the Shakers. The Shakers emerge 1774, right alongside the new nation, almost. Um. But I think where we want to get, and I think the more interesting ones take place in the 19th century, and they're a product of the Second Great Awakening. And I think the key aspect for people to know about the Second Great Awakening is this idea of moral perfectionism, that you can start a terrible, horrible person, including being somebody like a slave owner. And like the flick of a switch, you can suddenly become holy and chosen and good.
1: Yeah. And this, when I talk about evangelicalism in my classes, like the roots are right here in this theology, in this second great awakening that takes place in the early years of the United States. And the idea that somebody yeah can just completely change their course in life through their actions and they can attain perfection. Not that German. heaven can be on earth. That heaven, heaven can be on earth. Yeah. And it's up to you to create it. And, and so... Go ahead.
0: And there's the idea that if an individual can do that, then that means a community can do it as well.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's why you see so many moral reform movements that take place during this time period. Anti-slavery societies, um, temperance societies, women's rights... Uh, the list goes on and on and on and on, because you have people, prison reform, right? You have people who say, if I can make myself better and I can, you know, make myself more holy or more perfect, uh, more Christ-like, then our community can do that too. And so we're going to reform our communities to make our communities more Christ-like and to make this heaven on earth. And some of these utopian communities take it to an extreme and say, no, heaven already is on earth. We have to do something to help create it. It's not just um, given to us, but it has to happen through our actions. Which to me is like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but it did to them.
0: So, yes, and I think you can't understate how amazing and revelatory and revolutionary this was for people because what it meant is the United States can cure itself of the blight of slavery in an instant. If we just decide to do it.
1: Right. If we correct.
0: If we correct it, we can make things.
1: Right. Right. The ship. And,
0: and I'm going to bring up kind of the African-American community a little bit later because I think they get left out of this utopian discussion quite frequently. Um, I did a lot of research and there was one I already kind of knew some things about, and I kept looking for it in the books I was reading and they weren't talking about it. And I was a little frustrated. I'm like, why is this not a utopian community? But where I want to start, and I know, I know you are anxious to talk about one in particular, but what I want to start before that is one of the oldest second great awakening <laughs> communities. Harvey's very excited to talk about this, which is new harmony, Indiana.
1: Oh yeah. This is a good one.
0: You want to give us the, the quick summary?
1: Um, it was established in the early 19th century. And again, you know, you're talking about a lot of these are established under a person and so this was established under a man named George Rapp. Um, the town was known as Harmony. And it was um, a settlement of Lutherans who had separated themselves from a church um, of, and people who had immigrated to the United States. Um, and they built this new town in, in basically what was the wilderness at that time. Um, and they were really interested in, in education, science, They established a library, a civic club, a public school system that was open to men and women. So, a lot of these utopian societies, you see equality amongst men and women. You see like equitable distribution of labor and power. And um, many times, women are part of the power structures.
0: Um, These are smart people from Philadelphia that get taken out, that get convinced to take boats. And go live in the wilderness, baby. on the Ohio River to go do this, right? So they they uh, uh, these this journey where they all kind of get on these boats was referred to as the boatload of knowledge.
1: It was called what?
0: Boatload of knowledge because boatload you have of all knowledge. these smart <laughs> okay. people. So the idea was this that that modern society and capitalism as it looks by 1825 is awful, and did. De- Detrimental to a good life, but it's also detrimental to the study of science. So they get these scientists and kind of really smart people, including a couple of founding members of the National Academy of Science to relocate to the wilderness. Of yeah, people
1: from like the American Philosophical Society, people from UPenn. Um, and, and they go to New Harmony as like these intellectuals and establish this new community. What I'd like to say about this too, though, is this is so directly correlated to an anxiety that people had during this time period over progress. You had so many different technological advancements at this time. Um, you know, the development of the Erie Canal is happening around this time. Um, you, they're starting to lay lines for, um, telegrams, right? I mean, there's a lot of different sorts of developments and kind of precursors to the second industrial revolution, but sort of gearing up at this time. And I think people were really, really anxious about this. And many, many people were moving out of um, agriculture and out of the countryside and into these larger cities. And you start seeing a boom in population in cities, you start to see an increase in crime. There's also an increase in immigration. And these, the development of these utopian communities is a is a reaction, I think, to the anxiety over uh, technological and societal advancement. Well,
0: then you have this market revolution as well, and a fundamental that's reordering. what we call
1: it in the the survey, right? right? The market revolution I, era, uh, revolution. Well, I think it's this
0: kind of thing that happens in the wake of Jackson, during Jackson, Andrew Jackson's administration, but also in the wake of it where there's this fundamental reordering of how society works economically and who does what jobs and how those jobs are done. And are those jobs like secure? Um, Many people point to this moment where a permanent underclass is firmly established in the United States as people are kind of dispossessed of land as they're forced to move into the cities because they can't compete. Otherwise there, there there's no money to be made out there. Um, So these a lot of these utopian communities are direct responses to these challenges people are facing, and they're often critiques of recent change as well. And they do things that are kind of – and I think what New Harmony – what's interesting about that is it's it's a critique of kind of modern life can distract you from the real work you need to be doing. But it's not really a critique of anything else because it really is embracing modern science and like – it's almost like we need to make a permanent retreat space for scientists to go to.
1: Yeah. Like, well, we want to, we're so smart. We want to separate ourselves from normal society and other people. And, you know, this group of immigrants who came from Germany, they came from Germany seeking religious freedom as well. Mm -hmm. Very similar to the Puritan discussion we had earlier. Um, But it's almost like a, you'll see this, I think when we talk about, um, what is it the the fruit land community the transcendentalists and stuff where you've got these really intelligent people who are like we're going to get away from society because we're so smart but then a lot of them like they don't actually want to work like they don't they figure out like oh i have to actually farm the land like well yeah. you know you get um is like Nathaniel Hawthorne he's like i don't like this and well that's
0: thing yes <laughs> so, Nathan, yeah, so Nathaniel Hawthorne goes to brook farm Right. Brook
1: Farm, um, which only lasts, I think what for like seven or eight months. Well, I mean, New Harmony
0: only lasts for four years, did you want to work. Brook Farm lasts for five years. The problem with Brook Farm. Um
1: which one's the one that lasts for only nine months? Is it the Fruitlands? Uh Fruitlands. Fruitlands. So
0: Fruitlands <laughs> is where you get all these people who are gonna yeah. live off the land. And nobody knows how to farm.
1: Right. And they can't grow anything. So like, okay, we quit. (laughs) I guess we're done. But work farm doesn't last a long time either because you have a lot of these artists and writers and really intelligent folks who want to go create this utopian community, but in order to create a utopian community, you have to have industry, some sort of industry, some way to sustain. And that's why the Shakers were so successful and the Oneida community were so successful because they created this industry to sustain themselves. Well, so this is right. So this is the thing.
0: So New Harmony fails after four years because it's financially dispensed. They're not they're not doing anything to support the community. Isn't Fruit it Land's, beautiful
1: though? Like everything they built there. Yeah. It's really pretty. They build like over 30 different buildings.
0: Um, So there's a park, there's a state park in Indiana you can go to. And they've kept most of the buildings intact and you can read a lot about it. But it's, it's amazing. But I think it's, so Fruitlands fails just because it's a lot of people in complete, they're delusional about what's going to happen. But what I find interesting, Louisa May Alcott's father is part of this. Um, Yeah, and
1: he also doesn't want to do anything, right? Well,
0: and Louisa... May Alcott criticizes them because suddenly it looks like the only people doing work at Fruitlands are the women.
1: And they're not successful at it, but they are the ones laboring the most because the men are like, I'm too smart. I'm here to be smart and think. It's like you can't sustain the community sitting around thinking.
0: But uh, another thing, and this is what eventually bites the shakers in the butt. Um, one of the founding members, Charles Lane, um, so he starts out with really strict controls over the community of what they can and can't do new harmony really isn't like this um nor some of the other communities but this one i think this one comes closest to a cult because he bans the consumption of meat you can't have any stimulants at all so no tea coffee anything like that um no alcohol um you can't use animals to perform labor for you. You can't use artificial light, which means no candles, no oil lamps, nothing like that. So when the sun sets, it's dark.
1: Yeah, and it sets early, you know.
0: Um, you can't take hot baths. When
1: well, the big one, you can't have sex. Well, yes, <laughs> and then, well, that's evidently
0: he didn't, at the beginning of the seven months, he didn't feel that way, but eventually it became that. So you're not supposed you're supposed to be celibate even if you're married.
1: How do you recruit people to this way of life? I mean, what's By the future? promising heaven on earth?
0: Right, but what's the future for this community?
1: Right. Well, you have to do recruitment. That's, That's what the- happens with so many of these utopian communities. Right. Many of them have really insane um rules around sex and around childbearing, childrearing, et cetera. And then the communities can't sustain themselves because people aren't chomping at the bit to go live someplace with no light, no sex, no alcohol. Like who's lining up for this? But you have to have a charismatic cult leader to bring people into it. So that's for me, I I know we're, we're saying utopian communities, but like they are always centered around a person and their ideas. And they're obviously very captivating people. To be able to talk people into coming into this sort of really monastic lifestyle, a rough lifestyle, a hard work kind of a lifestyle, it's not easy to convince people of that. So you must be promising them something and he's promising them eternity, you know, like bliss.
0: So I think we've set up to talk about a community that was anything but celibate.
1: Yes, (laughs) this was my rabbit hole that I just... I'm still down it. I was talking about so, it at breakfast New this York. morning.
0: So upstate New York, 1848,
1: the, the Oneida, 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 Oneida community. <laughs> the Oneida community.
0: What is complex marriage?
1: Okay, so I'm st- I'm talking about this at breakfast, and the kids are looking at me like, "What is going on?" If you have kids and you're listening to this right now and they're around, this is not appropriate. Um, so anyway. Complex marriage is the idea. So, in the Oneida community, it's founded um, in 1848, and you have this guy who is in charge of it. Again, um, his name's John Humphrey Nose or Noyes. Um, What was that? He was. was, um, (laughs) I've I've heard his name pronounced a couple of different ways. He still has descendants that are alive today, and they pronounce her name Nose. Um, so I'm going to go with that, but he founds this community and, and they live, they live in a communal sense in every way. And that also includes the sharing of sexual partners. And so nobody who's a member of the United community is allowed to be married, but everybody's married to each other. So Every single person within the community is by default married to every other person in the community, and they're supposed to be having sex with each other all the time, but not with one person repeatedly. So they keep exhaustive records over who is having sex with whom in order to make sure that there aren't what they call special relationships forming between any two members of the community. If they notice, That more than that people are having sex like, oh, wow, you know, Jim and Sue are having sex a lot. They physically separate them because the whole basis of the community was that you should not have um, attachments to anything in life and especially bonded attachments to other people. This included relationships with your own children. So there's a lot to say here. Well, all this...
0: Well, Aldous Huxley draws a lot of inspiration f- for Brave New World from the United community. If you look at the sexual politics in Brave New World, it has to do with this. It's okay if you have sex with a person a couple of times, but if it becomes something more than this, that it's a problem. So, they, so the community rejects monogamy. They say monogamy is bad, that that's actually the worst thing for you. But what I find really interesting is you were encouraged and you were actually kind of required to have sex with other people, but you weren't supposed to actually get pregnant.
1: Okay. So <laughs> this is what I started talking three. about this morning. It's like, okay, the kids need to leave. Um, They need to go upstairs. So there's this idea. So you have the complex marriage. You're supposed to be having sex with people all the time, but there's a, They do not want children in this community. So to practice what's called male sexual continence, which means that you can have sex, but you cannot ejaculate. Right. How do I don't even. (laughs) It's.
0: I wish you could see our cameras right now because I'm just like shaking my head. It's not even know. Well, I mean, the the interesting thing is unlike kind of 20th and 21st century ideas about birth control, it is interesting that they put the onus on the man. Because I think in contemporary America, the, the onus of birth control is almost always on the woman.
1: Right. And when it goes to, you know, back to the point about many of these communities that were utopian communities were egalitarian and women actually held a lot of sway in this community. There were only two people who were ever voted out and they were both voted out for being too pervy by the women. The women got together and like, you know, this guy's kind of freaking us out. He's out. And they were able to oust a member of their community because he was being um you know, too sexually forward or was being abusive to them sexually. and there's a lot of um, you know documentation about this. And so the women actually had a lot of power. But where they didn't have power was, you know, if you are not reproducing in this community, how are you bringing people in? Well, eventually people start coming in and they are married and they already had kids. Mm-hmm. So eventually the community has to start welcoming children. They build a completely separate wing for children, and they have a school, but you're not allowed to have a relationship with your child. So the women and the men who come in, they end up in this complex marriage situation, so they're not married to one another anymore. And then that means that they are not the parents of their children, but that the entire community now parents their children. So every person in the community is the child's mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Okay, this gets insane because they're not kids forever. Right. So eventually, they need to be folded into the community. So then, then what happens, Jeff? If you could see the camera right now, like Jeff is like blushing. He's so he's so <laughs> upset. Well, I mean, it's here's so insane.
0: Yes. So, I mean, this is already, this, this should raise a lot of questions. I mean, first of all, I want to, I want to backtrack a little bit. So this community is founded in 1848. And I think a lot of people, what they don't understand, morally, women are seen as deleterious to society for centuries. And it's only the 18th and early 19th century that really starts to flip. So I think 1848 is still a relatively new, it's still relatively new that women are actually more moral than men, inherently. Prior to that, you know, in the 17th century, definitely, women were viewed as easily swayable by the devil, um, that they were morally corruptible, and that they would seek to corrupt men. And sometime in the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, that flips, and men are the ones who are viewed as much more morally suspect, whereas women are kind of upheld as kind of these morally pure people, which is why it does not surprise me that it's ultimately women who kind of are judge who's fit to stay in the community and who's not. So, I mean, I think – I. I I know there's a whole debate with the United community with how much women, how much power do women have? Is this like, is this the first community in the United States where women actually have a a pretty substantial ability to kind of dictate how society functions?
1: I think yes and no. I mean, I would say yes in, in the sense that, it, again, it's egalitarian and they have a lot of power. They have a lot of say. Um, They have a lot of say in who they have sex with. I mean, so they have a log where they write down like, oh, I had sex with this person. And it has to be completely consensual. The idea of consensual sex in the 19th century doesn't exist.
0: Marital rape isn't even a concept till the 20th century legally.
1: And it's still, I think people still balk at it, to be honest.
0: well, still People will still defend and say, well, by act of getting married, you consented to all future sexual activity.
1: Right. Right. So in this sense, I think women did have a lot of agency, but one of Nose's core tenets about building special relationships, he said that the worst special relationship that can be formed is between a mother and a child. And so he cut off any contact most of the time about with mothers and their children. And mothers would oftentimes like try to sneak over to the children's ward Mm -hmm. and like cuddle their kids and talk to them and they get in trouble. And so when you look at it in that sense, it's like, that's really insane. And then women are losing a lot of their agency and a lot of just their, uh, you know, their maternal instinct or something and their, or their ability to rear their own children is being stripped from them, but they are consenting members of this community. There's nothing that's holding them there. They're able to come and go. And people, as a matter of fact, do this. There's a lot of documentation about people leaving the community, coming back to the community, over the 30 or so year period that it's in operation. Um, One of the things though, to get back a little bit to why this was an unsustainable community is that when you start trying to integrate the children into the community, they started this program of like sexual mentorship, which is pedophilia. We wouldn't, they wouldn't call it that at that time but they appointed women in their menopausal state to have sex with young boys to integrate them into the community. And the same went for older men and young girls. And this was a way of folding them into the complex marriage. But what's so crazy about that is like for years, these kids were reared with the understanding that everybody was their parent. So when nose tried to hand this off to his son to start running a lot of the kids were like, we, we don't like this. This isn't the thing for us, you know? And like, it was unsustainable in that sense. And, you know, in the beginning he did not want kids around, but then at a certain point they started doing this um, thing called stirpiculture, which they, he started pairing people intentionally to have children. And so there was a forced pairing of individuals because they were trying to create, it was like a eugenics movement, trying to create spiritually pure or perfect children. And so the Oneida community exploded in population, and you'd end up having a lot of kids there. And so it kind of gets turned on its head, like, uh, you know, initially it's like no children, and then by, you know, the 1860s, there's a lot of kids there. And then it becomes becomes unsustainable, because the kids don't want to get involved in this complex marriage. So. What ends up happening inside the <laughs> community, though?
0: Well, I, I have another question.
1: <laughs> I'm ready for it. I was deep. I'm sorry. I'm so.
0: <laughs> Do women have sex with women and men have sex with men?
1: So I think so. Um, I, I, didn't, I, don't, I didn't read anything about that. And I don't know. I mean, that's. I guess I shouldn't say I think so. It was a free love community, though. I but would how, think if it's consensual sex, I would think that it would be okay because it was all about consenting.
0: Interesting. So <laughs> So how does the Oneida community support itself financially?
1: So I do want to answer your question really quickly though, but they, women had sex with women for sure. That's documented. Okay. I can, I can look into this more. Um, So they sustain themselves. First of all, we talked about the shakers, the shakers sustain themselves through furniture making. Beautifully
0: simplistic American style furniture.
1: Beautiful furniture. And if you ever watch like HGTV, they'll be like, these are white shaker cabinets in the kitchen. That's where that comes from, from the shakers. Um, the Oneida community sustained itself through silverware making. So, if you Oneida, if you've ever seen plates or silverware or something that are like pretty, like affordable things, I think it, it says Oneida on there. That's from the community. They sustained themselves through making silverware. And even when the kids disband the community and say we don't want to do the complex marriage thing, that's the day that they held the meeting. 32 couples got legally married because they had already paired themselves up, but they didn't leave the compound. So if you're interested in this and you want to know a little bit more, I would encourage you to Google, like to look at what they built in New York. It's beautiful. It's a huge compound and it's still standing today. You can go there. I think it's multiple. I think there's a school, a nursing home, apartment. They were in
0: existence for over 30 years.
1: Well, but they all stay there and live there. You know, they say, we don't want to do the complex marriage thing. We're not into the cult thing, but we're really good at making silverware. And we like each other. We cooperate. We communicate. Um, And so we're going to just sustain the community as a business entity. And they create the Oneida business. But the other way they sustain themselves is there were a lot of gawkers. There were a lot of people who were very interested in this community. And they had visitors coming in and out of the community all the time. And so you'd have people come and stay and like, what are these people up to? And then they'd hawk their goods to them and they'd, you know, sell them their silverware or whatever. Um, So the community was sustained through um, outside community interest in them. And they were pretty much left alone too. They weren't like ostracized. I think that people, they were fascinating. I think people were interested in them, but They weren't ostracized.
0: So I want to talk about an element of utopian communities that often gets left out. So after the civil war, particularly you have a couple of waves of out migration of African Americans from the South to various places. You have the great migration, but you also have some smaller moments of migration and What's interesting is in 1895 in southern Iowa, you get this little town founded called Buxton, Buxton, Iowa. And it's actually founded by um, the Consolidation Coal Company. And there are evidently coal fields in southern Iowa. Who knew? Um, and they found this, this company town to kind of take advantage of these coal deposits. And a recruiter, an agent for the company has a real tough time getting miners to move out to the middle of nowhere to do this. And he actually finds that going to the Southern United States, he can actually recruit African-Americans to come work the coal fields. And the money's pretty good. Um. And, you know, they also are not really allowed to join organized labor at this point. Um, So they're resistant, they're they're not going to strike as easily and all of these things. They're initially viewed as a much more compliant population. And this is, I mean, this is, we've talked about this before. I mean, this is an interesting thing I find is, you have these industries who are always looking for what, what's the most compliant group of people I can get to work for me. But what happens is you get these African-Americans move out of the South and move into Buxton, Iowa, and they actually start to create in some ways a utopian community of their own because it's a black community. It's a black community that has black people in charge, So you have black teachers, black doctors, black lawyers, um, black policemen and it really thrives for a little while. There's, there's this moment where it really thrives. Um, and a lot of kind of cultural production, um, comes out of this. And, uh, there's a black civil rights movement called the Niagara movement. It's founder, George Woodson, um, is a prominent member of the community before he goes and founds, helps found the Niagara movement. Uh, The national association for the advancement for colored people um, is the, is the kind of the descendant of the Niagara movement. Um, You also get three black lawyers in the community found the national association, national bar association. um, And that is a black, um, a professional organization. So you get kind of this amazing things that that kind of go far beyond the bounds of the community. And And I think the reason a community like Buxton doesn't show up on the radar of utopian communities is there's nothing particularly planned about it other than it's a company town. But I think what's interesting is you have a group of people who find themselves far from home but there's an opportunity for to create something there that they could not easily have done in many other places in the United States. And you get this repeatedly across the United States as you get these small but kind of resilient and persistent African-American communities that emerge. Um, the most famous example of this is the black part of Tulsa, Oklahoma.
1: Right, which we talked a little bit about in our 1919 episode.
0: Right. But, I mean, this is, you can see, I mean, this is why when I tell students, look, in 1920, things become even harder. It becomes even more difficult to be black in America in 1920 than it was in 1910. Um, Jim Crow does not let up. It gets harder and harder. Um, A lot of these black communities are... Either victims of shifting industries, so eventually the coal company leaves, shuts down the mines, and the the community just kind of dwindles at that point. Other times, like Tulsa, the communities disappear because they're violently attacked. And and there's, you know, an intentional destruction of the community. Um,
1: Would you argue that Liberia was a utopian community back in the early 19th century?
0: I think for some people it was. Um, I mean, that's the thing is I think a lot of people who supported the project in Liberia, which was to take emancipated slaves, transport them back across the Atlantic, which is funny because they said back across the Atlantic. First of all, these slaves weren't born in Africa. These formerly enslaved people weren't born in Africa. They were born in the United States. So you're not, you're taking them to a place they've not been. Um and we've talked about this before as well. A lot of early abolition or a lot of abolitionists prior to the Civil War want abolition, but they don't necessarily want to live with black people if they're freed. So they support this idea of of uh moving emancipated black people to Africa. But I think some leaders in the African-American community saw it as an opportunity.
1: Well, I think the difference though, is like utopian communities for black Americans are like, I need to get out of this community where there's systemic racism, basically. Right. Where I'm enslaved in this community, like any ability to get out of this and create my own destiny and have freedom is going to be a utopian community. And it's not necessarily religiously based. It's like, I just need to get away from these people who are enslaving me. Whereas with white people creating utopian communities, I mean, they are, they're already white and they're already living in a white space and a white society, but they were like wanting to further remove themselves from that. And it, I mean, so it becomes with white people, it's like religiously based and with black people, it's like, well, politically kind of, or, um, you know, just seeking freedom, I guess they, and so I guess it's, I think it's interesting that you bring this up because it's, The community you were talking about initially is like, it's labor-based, you know, like trying to create your own destiny through your own labor and through your own, you know, ability to earn um, and create a community where you have the self-determination ability. Um, But it's because it's not religiously based, it kind of falls off the radar as being a part of the second great awakening. But I do like that you brought it up because you're right. I mean, we just don't get, we don't get a lot of this info, you know?
0: So the last community I want to talk to today, and it bridges kind of the nineteenth and twentieth century, um, is here in San Diego. So Point Loma is originally founded as a kind of utopian community. Yeah, uh, yeah. Catherine Tingley. Okay. Um, so she's a the, she is the founder of the universal brotherhood and theosophical society and so she has a strong idea a strong sense of humanitarianism but then she combines it with this kind of fascination with the occult so how did it how did the community work well no wages were paid um, everybody was assigned jobs, but there was a rotation of those jobs amongst the community. And I find this is very interesting because at the same time, the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, you see kind of experiments like this being taking place all over the world. Gandhi is part of a community like this in South Africa where there are no wages, everything's communally owned. Um, the thing with Point Loma though, is, um, It combines Christianity with Confucianism, Hinduism, Buddhism. um, And like their flag is this bizarre riff on the League of Nations flag. Um, And Tingley used to walk around and constantly say, an injury to one is an injury to all. So there's a collectivism. There's this idea of universality. Uh, Children were separated from their families
1: I in like communal
0: nurseries.
1: Huh? I like that this is a recurrent theme. Like people imagine utopia as a separation from children. Well,
0: even <laughs> So even if we go back to Puritans at the beginning of, of kind of the, the English colonization of North America, there's this anxiety amongst Puritans who are trying to set up utopian communities. What are we going to do about babies? Like,
1: yeah. When there's the idea too, we've talked about that children are more susceptible to evil or the mm-hmm. and things like that. What I would say, too, though, I like that you mentioned San Diego Point Loma, because you get a lot of people who come out West, you know, trying to seek uh, utopian spaces. And it always has to do a lot about the availability of land in the United States. I mean, and that's not to say nobody lived in the United States, in this region, that lots of people lived here. But there was a perception that there was just this vast, unclaimed space on behalf also- right people thought that.
0: You also want to be a little out of the public eye,
1: right? Well, so you know, going back to your, um, you know, the community that we talked about in Indiana, the New Harmony community, that was west. You know, they were moving from Bucks County, Pennsylvania, right? So they're we're going to move west. They bought thirty thousand acres of land, and you know, by the time you get to California, that's the same thing. There's just a lot of you know land that people think that they can go and claim, and they can live in, and they can create their own community.
0: So, I mean, so this is the thing Point Loma, I think it's definitely a cult because it collapses with Tingley's death.
1: So it has a leader, yeah.
0: It has a leader, a kind of this charismatic figure. Um, but it's interesting. After her death, there's a competing group of theosophists in New York who receive mystical instructions to ignore the things Tingley talked about. And they actually moved to Pismo Beach, found a new community. Called Halcyon established the Temple of the People, um, and which includes a sanatorium, by the way, uh, which is one clue as to how they made money. Um, but by 1912, they disbanded as well, I, and I think this this. What is attractive about the West and why we see these groups coming out here, but it's also why we see some of the ones when we do part two and talk about 20th century cults. So many of them are located in the Western United States is there's an availability of land, but there's also a a distance from nosy neighbors and an intrusive government.
1: Yeah, and the idea that you can have this self-determination in these regions that are more like sparsely populated, right? Like a more of a wilderness, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, But, you know, when we're talking about the cults of the 19th century or these utopian societies, New York was the really big place for that. And it ended up being called the Burned Over District um,
0: because- You get- Seventh-day Adventist emerge uh, out of upstate New York.
1: Oh, uh, we didn't Mormons. even talk about Mormons. I know. We need a we're, whole Mormon episode. We're going to have a whole episode on Mormonism. Um, and that's a successful cult.
0: Well, this is right. Like wildly and it, and, it, successful. and it adheres to our definition of a cult, which is a movement that's centered on a charismatic individual.
1: And um, technically, Christianity applies to that, too, but we won't go there. Well,
0: but I mean, here's the thing is they Mormonism survives the death of its initial figure. Yeah. And that's the thing is most cults, which may be why it's not necessarily a cult, because cults generally fail the minute their central figure's dead or kind of incarcerated or whatever.
1: Well, that's why I'm saying it's successful. It ends mm-hmm. up turning into a religion, which I think all religions start as cults. You have a small... Number
0: of people. No. I I just, I just see our subscriber numbers collapsing now. Sorry.
1: Well, I mean, and I don't mean, that's why I said it's, it sounds like it has a negative connotation. Like, but you do, if you think about like, okay, you have 12 people around a charismatic leader and they start all these rituals, you know, but then it does become successful. And so then it turns into a religion. Right. Like What is the difference, I guess, between a religion and a cult? Like, I guess we could talk about that. But I think that with Mormonism, it didn't really fall into our category today simply because we're talking about these short-lived utopian communities, whereas Mormonism, I think, is the fastest growing religion in the world today.
0: Is it? I thought Islam was faster growing.
1: I thought I can look, but I had heard that it was Mormonism because they, they proselytizing in um, central and South America and they have a lot of um, converts and they have a lot of mission trips. And like, that's a core part of their belief system is like recruitment. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very fast growing religion.
0: Right. Um, And because they don't advocate celibacy either. They actually advocate
1: having lots of children, children, but under very strict rules. Right. We can get into all that because I have so,
0: fascinating <laughs> stuff about that. So I mean, I think we're going to continue this conversation with kind of 20th century kind of descendants of these movements, which are communes and cults, right? Um, and it's. We're going to talk a lot about the 60s and 70s because that's kind of the heyday for these things. But not just that. And San Diego's going to crop up again.
1: Oh, yes. Yes, I just watched the Heaven's Gate um, documentary because, again, this is what I do with my free time. I watch these sorts of things. But Well,
0: whenever I'm up kind of um, on the old Pacific Coast Highway, I pass by Swami's Beach, which is – Theosophist, right? That's the that's the one at Point Loma, is related to that. But I mean, it's Southern California. Well, California in general. Well, let's the West Coast of the United States. Let's <laughs> has a lot of these things. Yeah, um,
1: Oregon has a lot. Um,
0: Oregon. I mean, we'll talk about the family. The family. Um, a lot to be said. Yes. So There's,
1: this is going to be fun. I like the series because I think. It, I, what I kept thinking about is like, am I just looking at this from the stance of a US historian where I think that this is just so American or mm. is this a global trend? And I just don't know a lot about what's going on globally, but, and that may be the case. I'm very much willing to concede that if I, you know, I can look into global cults, I guess, but it does just seem so American, doesn't it? And like you said, I mean your initial argument that like the founding of this country was because of, you know, cult like reasons. Well, it's a utopian experiment. Yeah. We
0: can make a better future. Right. And one that just We kind can of
1: build out. a world that's ideal. Right. For us and our community. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Well, look at that. 1 wow. hour exactly.
1: Boom.
0: All right. Well, uh, I think that's all for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff.
1: And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining.